You have a Bible with you, and I hope you do. You can take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the rushers are standing at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. Just slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure a Bible gets to you. And if you don't own a Bible, then please just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word, and we pray that it would be a blessing to you, maybe even especially over this Christmas season. Well, as we have been highlighting in this service, uh, this is the Advent season, and it's a great opportunity for us to slow things down and to take a very deliberate and focused look at some key topics. And the first topic of Advent, the first theme, is the theme of hope. And we're going to look at uh, the themes of Advent really through the lens of Genesis 3.15, That's where we're going to be sticking down. I told you we're going to slow things right down. For the next four weeks, we're simply going to look at Genesis 3.15. We're going to look at a lot of other verses too, but this is going to be the the verse that really sets the trajectory for us in this Christmas season, and I think it's quite fitting. There are significant moments, beautiful moments, powerful moments that we ought to pay attention to, and I would argue that in the story of creation, this is one of those powerful moments. They're they're speaking of powerful moments. There's this this moment um, at the end of uh, of the the book, The The Return of the King. For those of you who have not read The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, shame on you. The final book, the third book in the trilogy is called The Return of the King, and and these books fittingly capture a lot of um, theological realities. But in this final book, it's interesting, Tolkien describes how evil has been vanquished and all things are going to be set right. And after this moment where this ring is destroyed, you guys know the story, right? The ring is taken up Mount Doom and it's finally destroyed. Sam Gamgee, who's Frodo Baggins' partner in crime, he's his best bud. He's been with him through thick and thin. He even carried him on his back up Mount Doom to make sure the mission was accomplished. He wakes up from sleep at the end of the book, and he looks and he sees Gandalf alive. He's shocked because he thinks Gandalf is dead, and then he's shocked because he realizes he's still alive. But then he asks this question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world, he asks. And this statement, listen, it really is profound because it's different than asking whether good things are going to come true. It's asking whether sad things are going to come untrue. And Sam, like us Christians, he recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It's a place that is filled with sadness. It's cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits its redemption. And when we look around at the broken world that we live in, it forces us to ask this question, how is God going to deal with the sad things in the world? Even better, is everything sad going to come untrue one day? I wonder if it was the question that Adam and Eve were asking after they brought the sadness of sin upon God's good creation. A couple weeks ago, we 
we saw Adam and Eve stand before God in the garden. They were on trial and they were found to be guilty of rebellion against God, the king of the universe. And what God gives them in in this moment of brokenness and guilt and shame as they stand under the weight of condemnation for their sin that they can't excuse, they can't ignore, they can't deny, what God gives them in this very moment is hope. He gives them hope. He looks at them, and in essence, he says, yes, you plunged humanity into sin. Yes, the consequences will be catastrophic. Yes, life will be hard for humanity. Yes, the world will now be overrun by evil and wickedness and sadness. But yes, one day sad, one day, excuse me, everything sad will come untrue. He gives them this promise. It is the most defining promise of the Scriptures. It is the promise, I would argue, of the Bible, and it is the promise of hope. In Genesis 3, let's look at it together. We'll look at verse 14 and 15. Again, the context, Adam and Eve had just been found guilty of sin, and then it says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I want to show you three things this afternoon from this passage and a few others. In the midst of a broken world, God has promised the hope of Satan's destruction. In the midst of a broken world, God has promised the hope of Satan's destruction. Remember, it was Satan who deceived the woman and led humanity down the path towards sin. Yes, Adam and Eve were guilty. And yes, they tried to blame not only one another, they tried to blame the serpent. Make no mistake about it, the serpent is being dealt with here in these verses. He's given notice this, no opportunity to make excuses. He alone is immediately and summarily sentenced without interrogation. And the the summation here, the sentence here is this, cursed are you. Those are words only mentioned towards the serpent as God is going to lay out the curses in the following passage. Notice this, nobody else is explicitly cursed in the fall. It is Satan who is cursed, the serpent. And these are very important words to understand. The word cursed is introduced here for the first time, and it's the opposite of blessing. God has three times in the opening chapters used the word blessed. The world was blessed by God. It was, it was supposed to be fruitful and life-giving. It was supposed to thrive and flourish. And all of a sudden, we see here the intrusion of sin, and what we find is the curse flowing now. It's interesting 
The word curse is actually used three times here as well, not just in this passage, but in this chapter and into chapter 4, which is intended to be understood as a single unit. It's like Moses, the author, is telling us, don't you see what's happened here? What God designed to be blessed and life-giving has now been reversed. It's been flipped upside down. And now what we're going to see in this world is not the blessing of God through life thriving, but the curse of sin. And death is now going to pervade this world. Sadness. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that David Helm in his, his you know, big storybook Bible calls this chapter in the Bible a very sad day. And here, what we see is that the creation order has been reversed and we're moving back toward chaos and disorder. And the serpent is cursed. He's going to now be on his belly all of his days. He's going to continue to be this sneaky, deceptive creature who wreaks havoc upon humanity. And notice this, that he will lick dust all of his days. Dust here is in many ways symbolic of death. From dust you were created, and from du to dust you will return. So here we have this picture of a serpent who's going to continue to wreak havoc on humanity, and he's going to be an agent of death. But you'll notice what's introduced here as well between the woman and the serpent, enmity. There is now, moving forward, going to be a conflict, enmity between the, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and Moses intends this to be a shocking moment in the narrative. You see, she's supposed to die. She's supposed to be dead right now. She took from the fruit. God promised, when you eat this, you're dying, you shall surely die. You're going to be dead if you eat from the fruit of this tree, but instead, we hear uh, picture of hope. She's alive. It's a sign of God's grace. And this indicates that though they had sinned, Adam and Eve had not gone over to the serpent's side. I want you to kind of pay attention to that and file that away. These here are life-giving words of hope that he gives to Adam and Eve. Life is going to be ongoing, but, but listen, so too is the conflict. In fact, we see here the beginning of a great cosmic battle between the, the serpent and humanity. And this conflict is going to separate humanity into two categories, two distinct groups. All of humanity will, from this point forward, be relegated either to be a seed or an offspring of the serpent or seed or offspring of God, the woman. And in many ways, the Bible is going to be split down these, this line. You will either be blessed, offspring of the woman, or you will be the cursed offspring of the serpent. And interestingly, the very next chapter, God is going to say to Cain, remember, Cain's going to kill Abel in chapter 4, spoiler alert. He's going to use the very same phrase that he uses towards this serpent when he speaks to Cain. Cursed are you. Later, a wicked, sinful son of Noah is going to be cursed as well. And after that, in Genesis chapter 12, listen, anyone, anyone who is opposed to Abraham and the people of God will be cursed. So we're being told that the offspring of the serpent are cursed like their father, the devil. You see, we're given two family trees here. 
And part of the question we're supposed to ask is, what's our lineage? What's our family line? You will either worship Yahweh, God, as Father, or you will worship some satanically inspired God, gods, or a religious system, and ultimately Satan will be your father. Listen to what Revelation 12 verse 9 says. It'll be on the screen. It says, in the great dragon, notice this language for Satan, was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The rest of Revelation 12 begins to describe this ongoing cosmic battle between Satan and Jesus Christ and the people of God. And it's fascinating here that Satan is, is called the deceiver, but look at the language that's used. He's that ancient serpent. He's a, he's a dragon. It's almost this, this mythical picture that's supposed to help us conjure up the image of evil of Satan. I, uh, I, this past week, I watched a, a docuseries on Netflix. It's called uh, Ancient Apocalypse. And among other fascinating tidbits of information, the producer who was exploring ancient civilizations and mainly focusing in on ancient temples, since they were the center of virtually all ancient civilizations, he noted uh, something very fascinating. In all of these, these ancient digs, they're finding all of these old temples, okay? They're, they're excavating them and all of these archaeological digs, and they're cleaning them up. And one of the things he pointed out was so fascinating, fascinating, all around the world, all around the world, on virtually every temple and every pagan false religion, do you want to know what symbol was prevalent? The symbol of a serpent. Oftentimes, it was a snake. Sometimes, it was a dragon, which were called and known as winged serpents, by the way, or it was some kind of a, a watery serpent, some sea creature, which is, again, often found in pagan a creation myths as being opposed to the gods, a source of evil, but just is fascinating to me that they were all central. They all had a place in the pagan systems of worship, and, and the docuseries didn't ask the question why, or, or, nor do they make the biblical connection between Satan and false religion, but we know. We know that serpents are the symbol of Satan and his demonic activity to deceive the nations. That's Satan's objective. He is deceiving the nations so that they do not see the forgiveness and freedom that can be found in Yahweh God and ultimately in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And what we see is that in this sense, listen, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And throughout the scripture, again, it's really interesting. If you trace some of these things, some fascinating things you'll discover. There are, throughout the scriptures, satanic figures that are depicted as serpents or dragons, and they always stand opposed in direct opposition to the people of God. And, and the, the biblical authors, they, they, they make no qualms about using serpent-like imagery or statements throughout the Scriptures. And, and time doesn't permit us to go through all the Scriptures, but let me just give you an example of, of who is who's kind of depicted oftentimes throughout Scripture in, in serpent-like language. Both Egypt and Pharaoh are depicted as serpents. In fact, some of you may know this, but on the crown of Pharaoh, did you know this? On his crown, there is a serpent. 
a god that they worshipped named Uraeus. It's no surprise that Egypt enslaved the people of God and Pharaoh oppressed the people of God. Throughout the rest of the, New, of the Old Testament, the leaders of Canaan and Moab are depicted with serpent-like language. The king of Babylon is depicted with serpent-like language. King Herod in the New Testament is depicted with serpent-like language. In the New Testament, false teachers and the Pharisees and Sadducees are often depicted with this kind of language. You can follow these two tracks and this cosmic conflict all the way through the Scriptures, even getting up to a John the Baptist who looks at the Pharisees who stand in direct opposition to the Word of God, and he calls them, you brood of vipers. And then Jesus, in John 8, he turns to the Pharisees, again, who are refusing to embrace him as the promised Savior of, of Israel and of the world. And you know what Jesus turns around and says to them? He says, you are of your father, the devil. And what's interesting, as you read through the Scriptures and you look at even some of these key figures, at times it appears or it looks as if the serpent is winning. Satan is having his way. Then we come back to Genesis 3.15 and we realize that it is creating this expectation and this anticipation of one who is going to come and deal with the devil. I love how the New Testament puts this in 1 John 3.8 on the screen behind me. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, pointing all the way back to this creation account. And then look at this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're reminded by this that We're not simply caught in the middle of a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. Listen, this is really important to understand. We are either on one side or the other. And there will be only one champion in this battle, one victor in this war, and his name is Jesus Christ. The question that this naturally forces us to ask, listen, if you're sitting here today, it's really important. Whose side are you on? Who is your father? There's no neutral ground in this cosmic conflict. Jesus himself said this, he who is not with me is against me. And here's what you need to understand. Listen, those who have Satan, this great ancient serpent as their father, they have no hope in this world or the life after. There's no hope for you if you're on Satan's team, if you're on his side. But to those who are with Jesus, he gives the hope of Satan's destruction. He says that one day, this ancient serpent who has wreaked havoc on the world and led so many astray and blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, one day, that great serpent will be fully and finally crushed. He will be utterly destroyed. 
We have from this text a reminder, listen, that we can press on in hope because we know even now, especially this side of the cross, that the victory has already been won. Amen, church? Like Satan right now, here's the awesome news for you and for me. Satan is a defeated foe. He, he is a prowling lion who, who, who prowls around, sorry, a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. But here's the awesome news. Because of the cross, he's a toothless lion. If you're in Christ, the worst he can do is gum you. He's a mortally wounded serpent, but make no mistake about it. Listen, he is biding his time. He knows his time is short, Revelation 12 says. And so what is he going to do? He's not throwing the white flag up. He's going to do everything he can to attack the people of God and do as much damage as he can before his ultimate destruction comes. It's a call for the church to wake up and to live in the hope of Satan's destruction. But that only comes because in the midst of a broken world, God has promised, secondly, the hope of Christ's redemption. In other words, as we look at this text, you see this conflict is, yes, about the destruction of Satan, but it's it's about so much more than that. It's primarily about humanity's redemption. Sin, because of the temptation of the serpent and because of Adam taking of the fruit, sin now brings death, both physical and spiritual. Adam and Eve and all of humanity will experience alienation from God. They once enjoyed the presence of God in the garden. They walked with him in the cool of the day, but now they will know God only from a distance. Alienation from God will become a reality, but so also will God's righteous judgment. God will judge sin and sinners. And the question that this text asks and answers is this, who is going to come and rescue humanity? Who is going to come and redeem fallen humanity and save them from their sin and place them back into the presence of God? Who's going to come and do this? And the answer from this text is that there is one who's going to come. Notice what the text says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a singular individual in focus here. But I want you to notice too how this is framed. He, this offspring, this singular offspring, he's going to bruise your head. There is going to be a mortal wound delivered. But you, the offspring of the serpent, will bruise his heel There's a distinction here. There's similarities, but there's distinction. One is going to be a mortal wound. The other is going to be recoverable. This single verse is kind of like an acorn that is being planted at the beginning of Scripture. And as you read through the pages of Scripture, it's going to grow into this towering oak tree. It is the consuming promise of the Bible Theologians for centuries have referred to this as the proto-evangelium, proto meaning first, evangelium meaning good news. It's where we get the word evangelical from. It's the first glimpse and taste of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is hope given here to humanity. 
They will not remain alienated from God. They will not remain dead in their trespasses and sins, but God is going to provide a way to restore fallen humanity. But the question from this point on in the Bible, and the question you need to be asking, and every faithful Jew who is reading the Scriptures, as they open their their Old Testament and they read through the Torah and then later the, the, the writings and the prophets, the question they're asking is this, who's going to be the one? What's he going to look like? How is he going to do this? The battle, as we know, will be waged for millennia. And it will begin, as we saw, immediately. But the serpent will not get the last word. You see, as you read through the Scriptures, you're going to follow these two tracks, okay? There's going to be two seeds. There's going to be two offspring. The offspring of the, the serpent. There's going to be the offspring of the woman. And here's what's really fascinating, okay? Satan doesn't know who the one's going to be either. So what does Satan do? He's constantly on the offensive. He wants to go after and attack the seed of the woman. He wants to destroy the line of the woman because he knows what God said, the promise he made, will eventually come true, but he's going to do everything he can to prevent it from happening. And we see this happen almost immediately in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel. This is satanically, demonically inspired. And it's not just this story about two brothers who offer different sacrifices. It's a story about a cosmic conflict and Satan trying to stop the seed of the woman. But though Cain kills Abel, the promise is continued through the line of Seth. And then all of a sudden, again, things look like Satan looks like he's winning again, and the cosmic battle ensues. And what do we find out really quickly after chapter four? Everything goes downhill, right? Satan has his way. He's continuing to deceive humanity from following God. And what do we have? We have this picture of sin run rampant so much so that God wants to destroy the whole earth with a flood, minus a few people, Noah and his family. And then as soon as God saves, again, you see you're tracking the line of the seed, okay? The promised line of the seed, the offspring of the woman. And then all of a sudden, here's Noah. Maybe he'll be our great savior. He's depicted in some senses like another Adam-like figure. And then what happens? Sin. And then then from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 11, what begins to happen? Everything begins to fall apart in the world. All of the nations of the world unite against God. It looks like Satan's winning. He's going to wipe out the seed of the world. Is there any righteous person left? And what happens? They build this tower together in rebellion against God. And what does God do? He raises up one man. The very next chapter, chapter 12, you know what God says? I'm not done. I made a promise. And he takes Abraham in chapter 12 and 15, and he makes a promise to him of offspring. And the promise of this offspring is continued through his children, Isaac and Jacob, and eventually it's narrowed down to Judah, where we're told that there's going to be a kingly figure coming out of the line of Judah. We get glimpses of this redemption, by the way, in Israel's monarchy, 
When God places them in the land and he gives them kings, we start getting this sense of of what this one is going to look like and what he's going to do. And even the first king of Israel, Saul, he goes to war against the king of the Amorites. And the king of the Amorites, guess what his name is? Nahash. It's the very same word, root word for serpent. And we get this picture of Saul leading God's people against the people of the serpent. But in the most famous story of all, maybe the the most famous Bible, or sorry, uh, um, uh, Sunday school story regarding a king uh, or a soon-to-be king, we, we read about the one, the man who is a man after God's own heart, David. And what's the most famous story of David? I mean, it's David and Goliath, isn't it? But what's really fascinating as you look at that story is that Goliath is depicted as a giant serpent. You say, well, how so? Well, the the text goes to great pains to point out that he wears scaly armor. And then if you just track the themes of the, the story, he spits venom out of his mouth, defying the God of Israel and seeking to defeat and enslave God's people. He is for sure a satanic-like figure, but God, isn't this amazing, gives David this unassuming man. He doesn't look like anything special. He's the youngest in the family, and here he comes. God gives David strength to stand firm against Goliath and to conquer the dragon by crushing his head with a stone so that Goliath falls face down to the dust, licking the dust like a serpent. And perhaps what's more ironic and profound of all is that David picks up the giant's own sword and cuts off his head with it. This picture of the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Don't miss that, that he uses the very weapon aimed at his destruction in order to destroy his greatest foe. And the theological message of David and Goliath is that the battle belongs to the Lord, that God slays dragons, God redeems his people. That God is faithful to his promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. There is one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent in order to redeem his people. I I love what Isaiah 27 verse 1 says on the screen behind me. It says, in that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. It's a picture of what God is going to do. It's a picture of the redemption that awaits all of God's people. But but the redemption must be done in a certain way, not by seizing power the human way, but by suffering. And this, this was what was so missed in the Scriptures. In fact, Satan himself, the great deceiver, tries to deceive Jesus into taking the kingdom the wrong way. In the temptation of Jesus, remember what he does to him? He brings him on top of of a mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give to you all the kingdoms of the world if you simply bow down and worship me. He's saying, listen, I know this is your kingdom, but, but take it like this. 
Take the easy road. But the easy path is not God's path. Redemption for God's people, listen, requires suffering before glory. There is a cross before there is ever a crown. And in Isaiah 53, we see this picture of this one who's going to come and how he's going to do this, how he's going to destroy the work of the devil and at the same time provide redemption for God's people. He will be wounded for their transgressions. You see, sin and death can only be defeated through a perfect human substitute. D.A. Carson, he puts it like this. He says, by going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy this serpent, this devil who holds people captive under sin, shame, and guilt. He will crush the serpent's head by taking their guilt and shame on himself. And I think of the, the words of the, you know, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. They've, they've just witnessed the, the death of Jesus. And as they walk on this road to Emmaus and Jesus, you know, disguises himself and he, he kind of sneaks up on them, they're, they're chatting with one another. And when Jesus asks them why they were so sad, isn't it interesting that the language, they're, they're sad. Here's their response to Jesus. But we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. But they missed, they missed this, didn't they? So what did they miss? They, they missed the very essence of Genesis 3.15, that Satan would use the cross to bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would use the cross to crush the head of the serpent. It could happen no other way. And so here they were waiting for a child to be born. They, they clung to the prophecies that came from Isaiah, as we read earlier, and Micah, the one who was going to be born in Bethlehem, the one born of a virgin. And they almost missed him because they didn't understand how he would destroy the works of the devil and redeem God's people. And that was the cross. And can I just maybe urge you some of you in here today, don't miss Jesus, okay? Don't, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss what he had to do for you. Don't, don't, don't think that Jesus was just a good man, a good teacher, that you just have to follow the way of Jesus. Don't miss this. It's not about that. Don't miss what Jesus had to do to rescue you and to save you from your sins. Jesus had to walk a path of suffering. Jesus had to go to a cross. Jesus had to be nailed there. He had to be. Multiple times in the Gospels, he looks at his disciples and he tells them that he, he sets his mind towards Jerusalem because he has to go there to suffer and to die and to rise because without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for anybody to be saved from their sins. Don't miss what Jesus did for you. And can I just urge you Christians, listen, this Christmas season, don't miss what Jesus did for you. Don't, don't miss what you have in Christ today. Don't miss the opportunities that God wants to use you for, right? We have the answer for the hopelessness of the world. We have the light that shines in the darkness. God has shone the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts so that we may not hide our light under a bushel. Amen? Okay, so let's be the people that God calls us to be. And this Christmas season, I just want to encourage you. Listen, our world is filled with people who are hopeless. And they're running around scrambling and they're, you know, they're trying to you know, buy as much stuff as they can with what little money they have. 
They're trying to fill voids in their life and their heart with food and drink, with fun, and even with good things like family and relationships. But what every person is ultimately longing for is what only Jesus can give, and that's the forgiveness of sins and freedom in Christ. I wonder if you've thought about who you're going to share the gospel with this Christmas season, who you're going to invite to a Christmas Eve service. I'd encourage you, don't miss the opportunities. In the midst of a broken world, God has promised the hope of Christ's redemption. And if you have that hope already within you, there is another kind of advent that characterizes the Christian life, another kind of waiting, another kind of anticipation, and that is the hope of a new creation. The coming of Christ isn't just about individual or personal redemption and salvation. It's actually about cosmic redemption. And make no mistake about it, God begins with humanity, and, and, and humanity is the most precious part of all of God's creation. But I want you to hear what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, in him, this is the theme verse, by the way, for, for our church. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Catch this, listen. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a plan to redeem all of creation. The first coming of Christ isn't the end of the story. In some senses, it's just the beginning. At this moment in the story of Adam and Eve, we, we must remember what was lost, okay? We must remember what, what was forfeited as Satan usurped the authority of Adam and became the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. What was it that Adam and Eve lost and gave up? They, they lost purity, didn't they? Their, their innocence. They lost paradise. They, they lost the beauty of Eden and all of those incredible provisions of God. But most importantly, they lost presence. They lost the very presence of God that they were meant to live in and with. Sin has now invaded in irrevocably broken God's good creation, the brokenness of the original creation. Listen, here's, here's what this passage actually is telling us and is implying for us. The brokenness of God's original creation must be replaced by a perfect, sinless new creation. And the book of Revelation actually describes the, the ongoing and the final battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. In fact, one of the major purposes of the last book of the Bible is to comfort and encourage Christians by revealing future events and providing heavenly perspective on present earthly difficulties. In other words, it's designed to give us hope. But there's a concerning moment in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. John, who writes the book of Revelation, he, he has this moment in chapter 5. I'll put the words on the screen so you can see them. 
And in chapter 5, it says that he saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And notice this, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why does John respond this way? He's getting this vision from God, this revelation of Jesus Christ. What could be so important about this scroll? We know from the rest of the book of Revelation that what happens uh, once this scroll gets opened. So we can say uh, what would not happen if the scroll were not opened. That's one way to look at this. In other words, if the scroll were not opened and we were to go through the rest of the book of Revelation, here's, here's just consider this. Here's what would not happen, okay? Jesus would not be worshipped as worthy to open the scroll. Jesus would not be worshipped as the world's redeemer. The martyrs of the faith would not be avenged. The prayers of the saints would not be answered. God's appointed plan would not come to pass. The kingdom of the world would not become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The wicked would not be judged. Jesus would not come back. Sin and Satan and death would not fully and finally be destroyed. God would not reign in glory in his kingdom. God would not dwell with his people again. God would not make all things new. To sum up, if that scroll isn't open, the Bible's promises don't come true and hope is defeated. No wonder John weeps. Ever wonder if things will turn out the way you hope? Maybe you look at your life or you just look at the world and, and all you see is darkness and sin and pain and tragedy and problems everywhere you look. And maybe you look at the state of Christianity and you see, man, the abundance of false teaching and hypocrisy and so much failure out there in the world, but also here in our heart. You sense this. You feel it. And you wonder, maybe like I do from time to time, is anyone going to come and fix all this? The older I get, the more I resonate with, with John's words, come Lord Jesus, come. So John is feeling as he weeps. He, 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 has, he has a sense of, of hopelessness. But, but here's the awesome truth. He is not left hopeless and neither are we. In fact, the very next verse, listen to what is said. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Just a little further down in verse 9, it says this, that they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth and a little further down, they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, listen, all creation, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, the first advent points us to the hope of the second advent. It points us, listen, to the return of the king. And what we're being told here, the hope we're given is this, listen, he will come again, church. And that means, that means, listen, that Jesus will be worshipped as worthy to open the scroll. Jesus will be worshipped as the world's redeemer. The martyrs of the faith will be avenged. The prayers of the saints will be answered. God's appointed plan will come to pass. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The wicked will be judged. Jesus will come back. Sin and Satan and death will be fully and finally destroyed in the lake of fire. God will reign in glory in his kingdom. God will dwell with his people again. God will make all things new. This is what our God has promised. This is our great hope, that in the midst of a broken world, we have been given the hope of Satan's destruction, the hope of Christ's redemption, and the hope of a new creation. Loved ones, listen, one day, one day soon, everything sad will come untrue. He will surely do it.